Exploring the challenges facing law enforcement and diving into the heart of crime in Alberta. This is The Social Fray, understanding crime and social disorder in Alberta on The Shea Ganim Show. Joining Shay is special guest Dan Jones, retired after an impressive 25-year career with the Edmonton Police Service. Yeah, this is a new segment here on the show that we're going to do with some regularity. And it's an issue that I think affects all of us. It's something we've talked about a lot. And that is the situation in our province. And we're talking primarily the big cities, but it goes beyond that, too. And that is sort of uh, we hear about, you know, headline grabbing crimes and we'll talk about those. But we're also just going to talk about the general state of play in our province. And There's been a lot of talk about social unrest transit issues all the rest of that stuff so dan jones is our guest and dan's going to help us make sense of this uh dan first of all thanks for being here always nice to see you thanks for having me um let's give people the background if they're just listening to you for the first time we've had you on the show before i really like the fact that you're here i appreciate your perspective because i think you're covering it from all angles first of all you're a retired veteran of the edmonton police service you've done the job right 25 years you were on the job tell us what everything you were like what did you do so yeah, actually, if you go with my full justice career, I was a correctional officer for three years before I was a, a police oh, officer. Was that right? Yeah, eh? I worked in the provincial system for two and the federal system for one at the Edmonton Max, and then okay. I left to become an EPS member. Started out in downtown division patrol, then moved to downtown division beats, and that was when 118th Avenue was part of downtown division. So I walked 118th Avenue from 97th Street to 76th Street for five years. Okay. Uh, then I left there and I went to uh, undercover operations. I spent six months uh, undercover with the radical right-wing extremism groups and six months undercover at a Mr. Big scenario. I left there and went to gang unit, spent yep. a few years in gang unit. I got promoted out of the gang unit, went to professional standards branch where I investigated police misconduct. Uh, left there, went to homicide section. Yeah. Spent a few years in homicide, wrote several wiretaps, which I loved writing wires. I thought that was just an interesting way to investigate things. Yeah. Um, got promoted again to staff sergeant, went to the West, West End was in charge of the beats program out there as well as a couple of patrol squads and then moved to uh got seconded to set up the indigenous relations unit uh and also work on the trc mm-hmm. i got mm-hmm. to sit at the table with uh, dr sinclair and, and chief little child oh okay it was really an awesome experience and then i got promoted to inspector and i was in charge of all kind of i was a packet drawer i was in charge of forensics document service police information checks community engagement hate uh hate crimes equity diversion and inclusion, youth section. It was just kind of a, there was a whole bunch of stuff in there. And then I left there, went to downtown division as the inspector and finished up my career in the research end of things, uh, doing, uh, working on evidence-based practices for policing. So, I mean, your t- your time on the job, you touched it, you did it all. You, like you say, you walked the beats, you were in homicide, you were in the administrative, you did it all. You, you, you know the policing business, inside out and backwards. I think so, yeah. After that, you go into the academic world, right? Yeah. Now you're the chair of justice at Norquest College. Uh, tell us about that, what that, you know, how you, how you came to that and why. Well, I... It was during, uh, later in my policing career, I got, I was at a conference and, uh, I was asked if I'd be interested in taking my master's degree in the, at the, in criminology and applied police management at the University of Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate that I was given a scholarship to go do that. Uh, and I got a scholarship, went over there, did my master's degree. Um, my research was on the victim offender overlap, looking at the, who are the justice client? And I think that's one of the big gaps in our system. That's why I took that on as a project is, I don't think we necessarily understand who we're dealing with. And when we actually really look at it, we're dealing with people that have untold traumas. We're dealing with people that 97% of the women in our example and 97, 95% of the men 
have trauma backgrounds with the vast majority of that trauma occurring at the average age of around nine. Okay. So we're really policing a public health issue. And we, we, I think we need to, that's, that's where the things sometimes need to change. And then I got the opportunity to, uh, teach at Norquest. And, uh, so I, I started out just as a full-time instructor and then short in short order, I became the chair of the justice studies program, which is, I, I, it's a great job for me. I really enjoy it. So you've got, you've got the book learning. There's no question about that. You've also got the, the street smarts. You spent 25 years on the street. So let's take that unique set of perspectives that I don't think many people can offer to this and talk about some of the situations and, and um, the issues that we're talking about, first of all, how do you quantify them, Dan? Because, I mean, we've always had, you know, um, homeless people. We've always had drug problems. We've always had violence on, um, you know, downtown cores and things like that. It seems to me, having lived here all my life, it's far worse than it's ever been. Is it really? You know, I, I think what you're, it's a changing landscape of it. And it's also the changing of, there's so many, it's so intricate because you look at the, expectations of police and with the murder of george floyd there was a police do not we don't want there's certain groups that said we don't want police in this area yes for sure we want to move them away from mental health well if you look at it drugs and substance abuse and substance use disorder is a diagnosable mental health sure, issue the dsm so if you don't want police there it's it becomes this this dance where do the police fit and if there aren't if the police aren't going to do it who is going to do it and i think what's happened is and even you make a comment about you've lived here your whole life. The drug scene has changed here since since I became a police officer. When I was a, when I started, there was no heroin, there was no down, there was no opioids. There mm -hmm. it was this was a crack cocaine city, yep, and or a powder cocaine city, and that was because of the oil field industry. Really, when you get right down to it, because cocaine leaves your system faster than any other drug. Yeah, yeah. So if you're going to party as a as an oil field person, in 36 hours, that cocaine's out of your system. Well, all these other drugs stick in your system, right? For weeks or months, yeah. Yeah, so even marijuana was... 30 days, right? Yeah. yeah. So you've got this... Now we've got this weird change in the drug culture, and now you've got the majority of people using either poly substance using, where they're using meth, opioids, and cocaine, or they think they're buying cocaine, but it's mixed with fentanyl, mm -hmm. and it's... So you've got this real change to the drug scene that was not there before. And it's we're still trying to address it with the same arm we addressed it with before. And when you look at the history of the war on drugs, crack cocaine was really, when you look at the United States, it was a black population problem yep. in there. So it yep. became, let's arrest and let's hammer the addicts. And then if you look at the, um, the opioid crisis and you look at the Purdue Pharma, they did the same thing. Let's hammer the addicts. These people are choosing yep. to be addicts. Well, people don't choose to be addicts. And, and the science has become so much more clear on that. What we need to do is we need to move away from our traditional methodologies of policing and response and start to change the way we do things. We're, we're trying to uh, answer the same questions with the same answers when these are now different questions that need different answers. And I think we really need to look at blending academia and policing to find the best answers and the solutions for these wicked social problems. <laughs> I don't think we've done it. I, obviously, we haven't. And I think we've got it. We can all agree that whatever we're trying to do right now hasn't worked. And, and a lot of people would tell you it's probably worse than it's ever been. Uh, our, our police chief asked, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago when all this was being discussed. And he said, when did we, we get to the point where public drug use became tolerable and something that we would allow? Uh, I, Good question, Chief. I, I would hope you would know the answer, but if he's asking it, do you know the answer? Like, there has been a change, and you say, was it George Floyd? Was that the impetus? Like, when did we decide that we're not going to try and 
arrest people for using drugs or for loitering in transit. Like, when did we, I don't know if you want to say soft approach, that's the wrong way of describing it. You know what I mean. Though. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's the desire. And even, and, and Chief McPhee came in when he came in originally, he was talking about off wrapping. Like, arrest, and I think one of his quotes that he used to use all the time was, we need to arrest those that we're scared of, not the ones that we're mad at. Right. Which is, I, I, I agree with that ideology. But you start to over-criminalize a population of people who are um, are using drugs for all kinds of different reasons. And, and I'll use a, an, a, an extreme example. But in our research that we did, we had an individual who um, had no criminal record. They had, unfortunately, a serious trauma background, and they were self-medicating with drugs and alcohol, trying to get um, treatment, like mm -hmm. therapy, for three years. Jeez. And they found out that they could get treatment by going into a federal prison. So they went and robbed a bank, waited for the police to come, got arrested, and asked for a five-year sentence so they could get treatment. And they did. And that's that person went and robbed a bank to go in and get therapy. Okay. And that's a little bit of an extreme example. Yeah. yeah. But the fact is, we've got a whole bunch of people out there that need the treatment. And, and mental health treatment is just not available unless you have money or benefits. And like I, myself, I go for therapy. It's two hundred dollars an hour. Oh, I know. Yeah, absolutely. I have coverage, and yeah. it doesn't. I'm I'm good. But if you're a person on the street who's had untold traumas, and you can't afford to eat, you're not going to go for therapy. And right. I, I think we need to. That's one of the things we need to shift is the accessibility of mental health services, true proper mental health services. And I think if you did that, you know, I'd love to run an experiment where we offer psychological counseling once a month to individuals with the same counselor so they can build a relationship, not the ad hoc person that just happens yeah, to come yeah. in. I think you'd start to see a significant change in the way things are operating in, in, in our downtown. That's a great court. idea. I mean, even if you just take a hundred people, a hundred people that you know are having these sorts of issues and say, listen, we're going to get you in front of a counselor once a week and see what happens and then follow up a year later. You're right. You'd probably see a huge difference in the lives of those people and then our community. For sure. And I, and I think we gotta, we've got to start doing things differently. And I I think that's the challenge with policing is it's a monolithic bureaucracy, right? Like it doesn't matter if it's the RCMP, if it's the Edmonton Police Service, it's the Calgary Police Service. There are these massive agencies that are really hard to maneuver and shift. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and it's not for lack of trying because we've seen we've seen uh, the help teams be brought in. Yeah, yeah. And that's good. But it's brought in at a level that's, is it enough to have a true solid impact? I would argue that it probably isn't. And are we targeting testing and tracking the new things that we're doing and what i mean is we target are we targeting the right places are we testing and are, are we tracking and are we determining that what we're doing is right what we're doing is actually evidence-based and and showing an actual change because we what the police do oftentimes is they'll throw something in there like this is a good idea let's do this but then they don't necessarily do the research to the sure follow determine if it's the, the follow-up determine if it's one of the best examples of this in justice is scared straight programs terrible they're terrible. They actually increase they increase the likelihood of the individual going into crime, because what you've done is you've given this young person a role model, and they're like, "I want to run the jail when I'm older," <laughs> and and it's proven all over the place. And you're like, "But we're st but they're still doing they're it. They're still doing it." Gun buyback programs. Gun buyback programs have been proven over and over and over again to not do anything, to have zero impact. Okay. They just did one in Toronto. We've talked about it in Alberta. There's a huge one nationally. Huge one nationally, like they, they are ineffective when it comes to reducing crime. And it's one of those things where let's look at what the evidence shows, what the research shows, and blend those things together. And if we do that, I think we would have better safety outcomes for our communities. Okay, Dan, I got to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about that. Like, what is the strategy we should adopt? Uh, we'll be back with Dan Jones right after this quick break.
We're speaking with Dan Jones, who uh, spent 25 years on the beat or on the force, on the job with the Edmonton Police Service, and he is now Chair of Justice Studies at Northwest College. So he's got this uh, from all angles. Um, Dan, we were talking a bit about how we got here and some of the conditions that created the social unrest or disorder that we talk so much about. I want to ask you in terms of how, who makes that decision on how to police it? Because there's been a change and we talked about that. Yeah. Maybe it's a little more tolerant. Maybe, you know, who, who, where does that edict come from? Is it, a, is it a politician? Is it a mayor? Is it the police commission? Is it the chief? Where, who gives that guidance? It's a mix of all of it, yeah. right? It's the political wins, like, you know, and, and, and we do. We have a very divergent, um, relationship, I think, between our city council and our provincial politicians mm -hmm. and the police are caught in the middle of that right for and, sure and they shouldn't be because that's the that's the reason we have a police commission is to keep the police kind of non-partisan political and yeah. not political right but it's almost an impossible ask right so you've got you know a, a, the provincial government saying we have this treatment and it's this this type of treatment and you have the evidence that shows that treatment works for some people yep. but we need this treatment this treatment this treatment we need like several different the types spectrum, of treatment yeah yeah there's a, a spectrum of it and and it's one of those things where how do we how do we dance that dance and make sure that the money is going into the right pockets of things to make sure that we are actually doing the things that are going to save lives, uh, prevent um, uh, uh, drug poisonings? You know, the conversation oftentimes about safe supply, people are like, no, that's all drugs are bad. Well, if you can stop people from dying, you can eventually get them to treatment. Of course, yeah. And I, I think we need to change the way we think about some of these things. And I think really what we need to start doing, and, I, and I've said this, I said this when I was in policing, is really focusing on that evidence-based practice. It's interesting for a, for um for an occupation that focuses on evidence to solve crime. Yep. We sometimes don't focus on evidence from an academic perspective, and I, and and there's reasons for that. It's because well, the academics don't know they haven't done this job, and it's that it's that line to cross, and it's one of those things where yeah, we need to we need to start crossing that line more and bringing bringing people in, and and, and I will give Chief McPhee some credit. He has an academic. Um, um, group that he's brought together. I'm one of the people on it, and he and he has that. So he's he's looking at having evidence based policing brought in, and 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 that academic side brought in, which is good. Yeah, it's a start, and I think we just need to start doing more of that because we're not going to change the face of what we're seeing into the downtown core without bringing in evidence-based practices. I know the chief has struggled with this. I struggle with this. I wonder what your take is. We want to be empathetic. We want to be compassionate because, like you say, in a lot of cases, these people are victims uh, that ultimately are committing crimes because they were victimized when they were younger. But now they're victimizing a whole bunch of other people, business owners, people that are just trying to get to work downtown, kids that are scared to ride the transit to the university. How do you find that line? You're talking about doing a dance and finding that. There's a line there, too, where you need to protect your regular run-of-the-mill citizens who just want a safe city to live in. 100%. And, there, and, there's, and there's tools for that. There's a, a methodology called hotspots policing, which has been tested over and over again, multiple places, including on the British Transport, which is very similar to our LRT. And it's this is the the tough thing. It's police go in for fifteen minute random intervals, in a sh in a micro place, a small place, basically where you can see everything around you, and they randomize throughout the day those fifteen minute intervals, and that has reduced crime between thirty and eighty percent on every study it's done. So what do they do? They just monitor. They just go it? there and walk in and say hi, how you doing? They don't try to get anyone's pockets. They don't try to get any warrants. It's it seems so simple because it is so simple, but because of simplicity, people are like, no, that can't. No, we got to get into the. We got to get the warrants. We got to yeah, find yeah. the drugs in the pocket. It's this. You got to and 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 if you see something illegal like open air drug use, it's where you go. Sorry, you know you move it. You have to move it on. There's the in supervised consumption site over there. So you can do that, or if you have to get arrested, we will arrest you. We don't want to do that. There's that. You have to interact in those spaces. Mm -hmm. If you see something illegal, 
But other than that, it's just being present. And that presence literally, and like I said, it's Coper Curve is the 15 minutes. Christopher Coper from George Mason University developed it. It's been it's been in, in it's been researched and tried over and over again, and it works every time. Are we doing it anywhere in Alberta? Is that happening? No, here? we're not because it's 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 too simple. And I think we you know, and I talked about this when I was with the organization. We need to do this. We need to at least do an experiment, and we need to at least see if this will work in our environment. It's worked in every other environment. Yeah, right. It should work in our environment, but let's check it out. Let's try it out. But it's because the simplistic nature of it, people are like, well, and then you, I'd hear other people say, oh, no, we're doing that. I'm like, no, you're not, actually. You're actually going into areas. Yes, you're going into a hot spot. You're taking the science of the hot spot, yep, which is yep. a high crime area, but you're going in there and you're action imperative to go in and get in people's you're pockets. You're heavy-handed and, and the whole thing. Yeah. yeah, all that. It's a, it's, it's a change in the mindset of how we police. And, and I think it's one of those things that's tough to do, but it's doable if you have the uh, the will to do it. Is it the pressing issue? Like if you're in police, and like you say, you're having conversations with the chief in Edmonton. Uh, is that sort of, this is what we need to deal with right now? Like we see it as a priority because we drive around town and we see what's going on. Is it a priority for police right now too? I, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you, and you see it. Like, and, and you know, whether you agree with the way that the encampments were dealt with or not, um, they're trying to do the best they can with what they have. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and and it puts the members in a tough position, right? You're like, you got to go deal with these encampments, and people are like, well, where are, you, where are they going to go? Understanding that you have, you're, do, again, doing that dance of public support. Yeah, well, and, right. and then you have individuals who are unhoused and now starting fires outside of the Boyle Street Co-op. Yeah, yeah. Because now their camps are gone. And so it's... It's what do we need to do to ensure that these individuals are safe and healthy and in a safe space? Don't get me wrong; I am not a, I'm not supporting encampments. Yep, yep. At the same time, we have to make sure we have things in place before we tear those encampments down. We have to make sure we have significant things in place before we tear those encampments down. We've only got a minute or so here, but I want to ask: if you're a cop that gets sent to one of these encampments, it went wrong once over by Alex Taylor, where a cop got into. I mean, that's the last thing any cop wants to see. I'm sure the chief was absolutely gnashing his teeth when he saw it. How many? How tough of an ask is that? Because you know everybody's watching. It's a tough ask. It's you know my my I think about these members going to these positions all the time and how yeah. difficult it is. And that you're going to potentially be on the national news, yep. and they're going to show a 10 second clip of a f you know 40 minute interaction, or maybe three hours of somebody or screaming at you, right? Yeah, right. And and those are hard. And I and I think that we have to give the show the police some quarter too. Um, I know it's really easy to blame yep. the police, you're but right. This is not a police problem. It's a it's a healthcare, education. Justice. All the systems need to start working to better for better outcomes. Yeah, and, and set the politics aside and just do the work that needs to be done. Hundred uh, percent, Dan. I really appreciate you coming. We're going to do this regularly. It's it's incredible insight, and I don't think you can get it in a lot of other places. So, Dan Jones, as I say, twenty five years on the job with EPS, now chair of justice studies at Northwest College. He'll do this regularly, and there'll be issues that come up, and we'll talk to Dan about it.